You're listening to The Voluntary Life, where you can hear ideas for finding freedom in an unfree world. Visit thevoluntarylife.com to connect with the show and hear all past episodes. Here's your host, Jake. Hi, it's Jake here. Welcome to The Voluntary Life. One of the topics that I talk about a lot on The Voluntary Life is how to get intellectual freedom and think for yourself. And there's a great article that I want to share with you relating to this topic. It's an article called How to Disagree by Paul Graham. Paul Graham is one of the founders of the Y Combinator startup incubator. He's a venture capitalist and originally a computer programmer. And he's written a lot of essays on his own blog, paulgraham.com, where you can find this essay. I'll also put a link in the show notes. It's a relatively short article and it's really well written. And with an article that's this well written, I might as well just read it to you rather than summarize it because it actually would take me longer to summarize it than just to simply read it. So what I'll do is I'll read you the article and I'll make some comments about it afterwards. In the article I'm about to read, Paul Graham describes a hierarchy and he describes it as being a bit like a pyramid. And there's actually a graphic representing this pyramid, which I will put in the show notes so that you can see a kind of infographic representation of this whole concept of a disagreement hierarchy that I'm about to explain to you. So take a look at the show notes and you'll see a nice graphic explaining the article as you hear me read it. So first of all, we'll we'll just go through the article and then I'll make some comments afterwards. How to Disagree by Paul Graham, written in March 2008. The web is turning writing into a conversation. 20 years ago, writers wrote and readers read. The web lets readers respond, and increasingly they do, in comment threads, on forums, and in their own blog posts. Many who respond to something disagree with it. That's to be expected. Agreeing tends to motivate people less than disagreeing. And when you agree, there's less to say. You could expand on something the author said, but he has probably already explored the most interesting implications. When you disagree, you're entering territory he may not have explored. The result is there's a lot more disagreeing going on, especially measured by the word. That doesn't mean people are getting angrier. The structural change in the way that we communicate is enough to account for it. But though it's not anger that's driving the increase in disagreement, there's a danger that the increase in disagreement will make people angrier, particularly online, where it's easy to say things you'd never say face to face. If we're all going to be disagreeing more, we should be careful to do it well. What does it mean to disagree well? Most readers can tell the difference between mere name-calling and a carefully reasoned refutation, but I think it would help to put names on the intermediate stages. So here's an attempt at a disagreement hierarchy. Disagreement hierarchy zero, or DH zero, name-calling. This is the lowest form of disagreement, and probably also the most common. We've all seen comments like this, quote, You are a fag, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, unquote. But it's important to realize that more articulate name-calling has just as little weight. A comment like, quote, The author is a self-important dilettante, unquote, is really nothing more than a pretentious version of You are a fag, disagreement hierarchy one, ad hominem. An ad hominem attack is not quite as weak as mere name-calling. It might actually carry some weight. For example, if a senator wrote an article saying senators' salaries should be increased, one could respond, of course he would say that, he's a senator. This wouldn't refute the author's argument, but it may at least be relevant to the case. It's still a very weak form of disagreement, though. 
If there's something wrong with the senator's argument, you should say what it is. And if there isn't, what difference does it make that he's a senator? Saying that an author lacks the authority to write about a topic is a variant of ad hominem, and a particularly useless sort, because good ideas often come from outsiders. The question is whether the author is correct or not. If his lack of authority caused him to make mistakes, point those out. And if it didn't, it's not a problem. Disagreement Hierarchy 2 Responding to Tone The next level up, we start to see responses to the writing, rather than the writer. The lowest form of these is to disagree with the author's tone. For example, quote, I can't believe the author dismisses intelligent design in such a cavalier fashion, unquote. Though better than attacking the author, this is still a weak form of disagreement. It matters much more whether the author is wrong or right than what his tone is. Especially since the tone is so hard to judge. Someone who has a chip on their shoulder about a topic might be offended by a tone that to other readers seemed natural. So if the worst thing you can say about something is to criticise its tone, you're not saying much. Is the author flippant but correct? Better that than grave and wrong. And if the author is incorrect somewhere, say where. Disagreement Hierarchy 3. Contradiction. In this stage, we finally get responses to what was said, rather than how or by whom. The lowest form of response to an argument is simply to state the opposing case with little or no supporting evidence. This is often combined with disagreement hierarchy two statements, as in, quote, I can't believe the author dismisses intelligent design in such a cavalier fashion. Intelligent design is a legitimate scientific theory, unquote. Contradiction can sometimes have weight. Sometimes merely seeing the opposing case stated explicitly is enough to see that it's right, but usually evidence will help. Disagreement Hierarchy 4. Counterargument. At level 4, we reach the first form of convincing disagreement. Counterargument. Forms up to this point can usually be ignored as proving nothing. Counterargument might prove something. The problem is, it's hard to say exactly what. Counterargument is contradiction plus reasoning and/or evidence. When aimed squarely at the original argument, it can be convincing, but unfortunately, it's common for counterarguments to be aimed at something slightly different. More often than not, two people arguing passionately about something are actually arguing about two different things. Sometimes they even agree with one another, but are so caught up in their squabble they don't realize it. There could be a legitimate reason for arguing against something slightly different from what the original author said when you feel they missed the heart of the matter. But when you do that, you should say explicitly you're doing it. Disagreement Hierarchy 5. Refutation. The most convincing form of disagreement is refutation. It's also the rarest, because it's the most work. Indeed, the disagreement hierarchy forms a kind of pyramid in the sense that the higher you go, the fewer instances you find. To refute someone, you probably have to quote them. You have to find a smoking gun, a passage in whatever you disagree with that you feel is mistaken, and then explain why it's mistaken. If you can't find an actual quote to disagree with, you may be arguing with a straw man. While refutation generally entails quoting, quoting doesn't necessarily imply refutation. Some writers quote parts of things they disagree with to give the impression of legitimate refutation, then follow with a response as low as disagreement hierarchy 3 or even disagreement hierarchy 0. Disagreement hierarchy 6. Refuting the central point. 
The force of a refutation depends on what you refute. The most powerful form of disagreement is to refute someone's central point. Even as high as disagreement hierarchy 5, we still sometimes see deliberate dishonesty, as when someone picks out minor points of an argument and refutes those. Sometimes the spirit in which this is done makes it more of a sophisticated form of ad hominem than an actual refutation. For example, correcting someone's grammar or harping on minor mistakes in names or numbers. Unless the opposing argument actually depends on such things, the only purpose of correcting them is to discredit one's opponent. Truly refuting something requires one to refute its central point, or at least one of them, and that means one has to commit explicitly to what the central point is. So a truly effective refutation would look like, quote, The author's main point seems to be X, as he says, insert quotation, but this is wrong for the following reasons, unquote. The quotation you point out as mistaken need not be the actual statement of the author's main point. It's enough to refute something it depends on. What it means. Now we have a way of classifying forms of disagreement. What good is it? One thing the disagreement hierarchy doesn't give us is a way of picking a winner. Disagreement hierarchy levels merely describe the form of a statement, not whether it's correct. A disagreement hierarchy 6 response could still be completely mistaken. But while disagreement hierarchy levels don't set a lower bound on the convincingness of a reply, they do set an upper bound. A disagreement hierarchy 6 response might be unconvincing, but a disagreement hierarchy 2 or lower response is always unconvincing. The most obvious advantage of classifying the forms of disagreement is that it will help people to evaluate what they read. In particular, it will help them to see through intellectually dishonest arguments. An eloquent speaker or writer can give the impression of vanquishing an opponent merely by using forceful words. In fact, that is probably the defining quality of a demagogue. By giving names to the different forms of disagreement, we give critical readers a pin for popping such balloons. Such labels may help writers too. Most intellectual dishonesty is unintentional. Someone arguing against the tone of something he disagrees with may believe he's really saying something. Zooming out and seeing his current position on the disagreement hierarchy may inspire him to try moving up to counterargument or refutation. But the greatest benefit of disagreeing well is not just that it will make conversations better, but that it will make the people who have them happier. If you study conversations, you will find that there's a lot more meanness down in DH1 than up in DH6. You don't have to be mean when you have a real point to make. In fact, you don't want to. If you have something real to say, being mean just gets in the way. If moving up the disagreement hierarchy makes people less mean, that will make most of them happier. Most people don't really enjoy being mean. They do it because they can't help it. So that was the article I wanted to read to you. I think it's really helpful. And as I mentioned beforehand, there is a graphic showing this pyramid of the different levels that you can find in the show notes. I find this a really useful framework to check where an argument is on this hierarchy that Paul Graham suggests. So if someone disagrees with me, or if I'm disagreeing with someone else, this is a framework for thinking about how valid is this objection? How valid is this argument that I'm putting forth or that somebody's putting forth to me? So you can use this framework to check where you are when you're having a disagreement with someone and check what level you are on this pyramid of types of disagreement that you can have. And of course, 
you want to be at level six, which is refuting the other person's central point. As Paul Graham says in the article, that's the most powerful kind of refutation that you can make. And it's also the most helpful to the other person. And you definitely don't want to be anywhere below level four. Level four is providing a counter argument. And the levels below that were just merely contradicting or responding to the tone or just simply making an ad hominem. So you want to at least provide a counter argument. And if somebody presents a disagreement to you, this is a way of checking, have they at least reached the level of providing a counter argument? And have they gone beyond that to really refute your point and indeed refute your central point? There are some limits to this framework. And Paul Graham really talks about those in the article itself. As he mentioned in the article, this framework only tells you whether or not someone has actually made an argument but it doesn't tell you whether the argument is correct. But it's still really helpful because most of the disagreements that happen are not even arguments. They're not even reaching the level of making an argument. They're mostly at things like disagreeing with the tone. When you read a disagreement online, typically it's along the lines of, oh, I don't like the way that this guy talks. He's really condescending or something like that. And that is not an argument. It's, it's a disagreement with tone. It doesn't even reach the level of providing a counter-argument or refutation of a point. So it's very useful to be able to check for yourself and for, the, for other people whether you really are even properly disagreeing with someone or if you're just making noises, frankly, which are, are useless and aren't really helping yourself or anyone else reach the truth. This framework doesn't cover all the issues to do with how to disagree with someone well. And in particular, it only covers some logical fallacies. I mean, Paul Graham in in this article, he mentions ad hominem, which is one of the logical fallacies, and he puts that at the lowest level of disagreement. But there are many other logical fallacies that it's well worth knowing and understanding so that if somebody disagrees with you, you can evaluate whether their argument is fallacious, whether it's a valid argument, even if they are refuting your central point, they might just be refuting it with a fallacious argument. And that's really important to be able to distinguish and understand. And there are lots of other bad ways of disagreeing with people that you see that aren't really covered in this framework by Paul Graham. One that I have experienced a lot is the yeah, but game. And that is when somebody will disagree with something I've written or a podcast, and they will make an objection to something I've said in a podcast or an article, and I'll tackle that objection and explain to them, and I'll show why my argument's valid and why their objection isn't valid. And what they will do is rather than acknowledge that or in any way pause, they'll immediately just throw up a different objection without pausing, without stopping, without even acknowledging that their first objection wasn't valid. And when that happens, what's clear to me is that that person is simply just throwing objections. They're not actually interested in the ideas that they're bringing up in disagreement. They just want to disagree and they just want to try and win points or in some way bring down the article or podcast, whatever it is that I've done. So I've seen that a lot and you will probably experience that yeah, but game. And it's a psychological game that gets played out all the time. Another problem that I've noticed is one that I heard described quite well by Sam Harris in a conversation that he had with Joe Rogan. Sam Harris is the neuroscientist who writes a lot about atheism. And although I am an atheist, I disagree with him about a lot of 
philosophical issues, but I thought he made this point really well. He was talking to Joe Rogan about the difference between debating and mixed martial arts, because they both practice mixed martial arts. And Sam Harris said the, the problem in debating is that nobody ever taps out. And what he was talking about is in mixed martial arts, if you're involved in training combat, then the rule is that when you know that you've lost, you tap out and your opponent has to let you go. If they've got you in a hold or if they're hitting you or something, you have to tap out. And that means that you acknowledge defeat and the other person has to let you go and and the, the round stops there. And Sam Harris was making the point that in debate, nobody ever taps out. Nobody ever acknowledges that they have been refuted and that they've lost an argument, essentially. And so that that's another kind of problem that this framework of Paul Graham's doesn't fully tackle is that, you know, if you're dealing with somebody in bad faith who's not interested in the truth, they won't necessarily acknowledge when their argument's been refuted. So there's lots more to say about good ways to disagree and bad ways to disagree. But I found this article by Paul Graham really helpful. And I find this framework really helpful. This is a useful way to think about the quality of your disagreements and of other people's disagreements with you and to think about whether or not you're really presenting arguments or whether other people are really presenting arguments to you. So that's all for this episode. I hope you found that interesting and I'd love to know what you think. Thank you for listening to The Voluntary Life. If you have feedback about the show, please email jake at thevoluntarylife.com. If you enjoyed this program, please share the podcast with your friends or click the donate button on thevoluntarylife.com.